there are two things that come up repeatedly in terms of how life evolved. One is tolerance and cooperation is the next. I think life evolved, you know, from single cell organisms to multicellular organisms to complex organisms. That happened through cooperation. Cells learn how to cooperate with each other. Tissues learn to cooperate with other tissues as they evolve from very you know, primitive single layer organisms to organisms like ourselves that are three layers, you know, and, um, and we are where we are currently because of this whole cycle. And it's gotten there because of tolerance and cooperation. I, I feel like it goes, it's, it, it works on the biological molecular level. It's only eventually through tolerance and cooperation that we either evolve or we don't. Charma and I'm your host Christina. Welcome to another episode of Follow Your Kind podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me your time. I apologize about a little bit of background noise here in the intro. I'm sitting on the beautiful balcony in Buckhead overviewing the traffic so that may play in just a little but I hope you stick with me for a few more minutes. So today we have a return guest. Dr. Sujit Sharma has been a guest on episode number 33 and he is a co-founder and CEO at Choose and we talked at length about his story and how he got involved with Choose and what the principles and really cool exciting pieces of this innovative disruptive food company are. Those of you who don't know Choose is uh, it's kind of like a mix between a fruity smoothie, fruity vegetable smoothie, and a salad. They call it a juicy super salad, awkwardly delicious and very healthy. It has 35 different kinds of plants in one serving in one bottle. It's about under, under 150 calories, but it has nine kinds of vegetables, eight fruits, seven herbs and spices, six seeds and three nuts. And uh, it's, it's pretty tasty comes into different flavors and uh, so we, we talked about that in the previous episode and what we did for this one uh, with Dr. Sujit Sharma we really focused more on gut health specifically and we took more of a bigger perspective and I learned Dr. Sujit Sharma is also a philosopher by his undergrad education so we took a philosophic route on this one and we talked about still the science and the lessons from the microbiome research, but then how is it applicable on, on a bigger scale? How is it applicable in our relationships? How is it applicable in, in, on a social construct level? How, how is it applicable on a national level as well as the universal level? There are just so many lessons and they're so, so, so interesting. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I really hope you maybe ponder in some of these concepts as well. Um, there's, there's a lot to learn and there's still yet a lot to discover. My other hope is that you find a fact or a concept that is new to you and maybe that you can share with somebody else. What I'm learning for myself is we're exposed to so much information, that, but how do you really make that information stick? How do you make it meaningful to you and how do you start incorporating into your life? And for me, one of the ways to do so better is to share it with somebody else. So if I learn something cool and I get excited about it, I try to share it with somebody or maybe two people and then everybody everybody benefits i remember things better and somebody else hopefully learns something new or at least um has a laugh because i just made crazy me just ran up to somebody or called somebody up and told them about this crazy fact to learn and then secondly maybe you also find something that is uh, actionable for you so an actionable step for me uh, in this one is really being mindful of how much diversity do i get in my daily or weekly diet, right? So it's uh, it's not it's not about abstaining from things. It's not about dieting. It's not about cutting calories. It's about the abundance of plants that there are and how well just how many different kinds of plants can I get into my system into one day? And the, as research shows, the diversity of plants in our diet is number one predictor of gut health. So this is not a brainer. And the calories in, calories out concept is not necessarily how how it works or there are things that are important beyond just that concept. So focus on, on abundance versus scarcity and make it into a game, make, making it into a challenge sounds 
just much better and much more fun. So I hope you find some of those things for you. Uh, if you care, I'd love if you could share those with me. Email me at christina at followyourkind.com. Connect with me on social media, Instagram, kind Christina or Tina Rostergoyev on Facebook. <laughs> Good luck spelling that last name. And uh, I also hope that you give Dr. Sujit Sharma a like or a comment. Uh, he is pretty easy to find on social media as well. And choose his company uh, is really easy to find on Instagram. They just relaunched this new beautiful website that you should check out. It's choose.com, C-H-U-I-C-E. And again, they're a great product to try if uh, you're looking just for some extra kicker in your microbiome health and some extra diversity in, in your plant diet. With that, I let you be. I hope you are taking care of yourselves. I hope that you are being kind to yourselves and to others. And I will talk to you next time. We are live. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Follow Your Kind podcast. Today, we have a return guest, Dr. Sujit Sharma. Um, very excited to have you here again, or not here, but virtually here. Thanks, COVID. Hi, Dr. Sharma. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me on it again. Always, always a pleasure. So you just have so much expertise in so many different areas. And I know there are a few different realms and communities that we're both a part of. And then we both are very passionate about prevention of disease through lifestyle, through health and wellness, plant-based nutrition, among many, many other things. And I'm grateful that our paths, paths have crossed several times now. What I want to talk to you today about is gut health, looking at gut health on, on, on many, from many different realms and microscopic level and down to, and, or the, rather up to the universe level of it. And uh, I'm excited to hear more about your thoughts and the wisdom that you gained uh, from what, what you have been learning and through, through your experience. But first of all, I'd like to start with a fun fact about you that I just learned about, and that is that you were a philosophy major. So how did that happen? Oh, wow. That, um, so uh, that's a good question. I think the, the short answer would be that I, uh, being pre-med, I was at University of Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. And um, being pre-med and knowing that my the rest of my schooling would all be around sciences. Um, you know, I come from a, a, a family where, uh, you know, both my parents were college professors and a lot of, you know, social science and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of thinking around social justice. I think I, that there's the, you know, kind of, these are topics that uh, I think the themes that were often discussed at the table at dinner back when people had dinner every day, every night as a family. Um, the, uh, so I, I saw it as an opportunity to broaden sort of the last opportunity I had probably to, to really broaden the foundation. Um, for, and I was very interested at that time, uh, still am in sort of bigger questions. And, and, um, and so that's where I think that, that's how that happened. Basically, and so I, mean, I was very, uh, um, I was very happy with the, the choice in the end because I thought it was. It was uh, I liked the writing part of it. I liked the the challenge of having to make an argument mm-hmm. for stuff. So, but it was definitely pretty rare for someone to go to medical school after being a philosophy major. This is fascinating. So it also sounds like it was a very conscious decision. So it's not just something you stumbled into, but it's something that you were pursuing while also being pre med. Yeah, yeah, I uh, yeah, I definitely liked. I liked the, you know, uh, in, I'm a qu- inquisitive person, mm-hmm. so I think that was just uh, it was a great way to pursue that. Do you think it uh, helped uh, you in any way to think through any of the problems or challenges uh, along your way, uh, along your journey of medical training, or the job, or how you approach the job today? Uh, yeah, I would say, I think and it was something more indirectly where I reflect back on that. I realized that there was some, uh, impact there, as I mentioned, on the one hand, learning how to, you know, you really meticulously go through an argument, make an argument based on evidence, um, for something, 
assembling arguments, I think there was something good just foundationally there because I think being a, uh, you know, being a doctor is all about investigation and about um, solving mysteries sometimes yeah. and putting facts together and so being like a detective. And um, so there was something I think kind of, kind of natural there. Uh, it definitely, I think now with the research that I'm involved with that um, in terms of viral uh, respiratory disease in kids and, and coming up with models uh, for how, how they work, it turns out this, it seems like there's some crossover with uh, philosophy and theoretical immunology. And I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated by it. Like I just wake up in the morning and I find myself just like interested in reading the next article and putting, you know, things together. And so I feel like somehow there's something kind of cool about that. I think the, where there's some full circle kind of thing, the universe working in a certain way that where I think the philosophy major now has somehow at age 52, uh, you know, kind of helped open up a new chapter for, uh, you know, of interest in my life. Mm -hmm. So it's exciting. That's fascinating. I also really like, um, we just talked a little bit right before we started recording about kind of perspective and bigger picture uh, in gut health and what we're learning in, in gut health. And I haven't, I really have not applied that kind of thinking before to gut health, but now it makes so much sense now that you said that. And one of the th first things that comes to mind that, um, you know, gut health is, a, is becoming a pretty hot topic and we're learning so much. I think a lot of discoveries and you probably correct me if I'm wrong, um, but most of the discoveries or a lot of the discoveries that we have done within gut health realm have been done in, in the past decade. I don't think we've known as much before as, as we're learning and continuing to learn now. But one of the, like, the most baffling things that I've learned about gut health is like one of the, the, the creatures that, that lives inside is called archaea, right? And they, it's like one of the oldest basically living things that found like they they're found everywhere like in the arctic and the like deepest caves and stuff and how like how much wisdom that little thing brings into, into our bodies and the thing to think that we coexist with them just blows my mind okay now please correct me if i'm wrong and tell me everything that i don't know about archaea <laughs> no no you're right i think this you know in terms of like the different you know segments of you know in terms that there's animal kingdom right and archaea is like another will be i think kind of correct I, I believe it you know it just it fits into another kingdom itself you know in terms of some of the most you know primitive um cellular life on this planet you know so going back 3.7 billion years 3.7 billion years yep this is very big picture <laughs> Very big picture, yeah. And so, and you're absolutely right. And, and it's what's really, really interesting is, it, you know, it's humbling. Science can sometimes try, you know, itself try to be very absolute. And there's times where I think even science and scientists are themselves humbled when they look back and realize that they were perhaps being overly absolute at a time when they didn't have the tools to understand or measure things that um, were not, they, these, you know, measuring things that are outside of the realm of our understanding. Now, 10 years ago, like exactly like you said, in these last 10 years, uh, you know, mostly through molecular science and molecular tools, we've been able to really open up and understand, you know, at a time we, we're basically where we, I would say it as we think, you know, where 20, 30 years ago, we may have thought that we, had the window for immunology was open three quarters of the way, fully open. And we look back based on what we know now and realize, oh, it was barely cracked open, you know? And this is still, this is still exploding. I mean, this is, you know, there's a lot to be answered in terms of truly understanding, um, you know, how we live with these organisms inside our bodies. And there's more of their cells than there are of our own you know, by a factor of 10, I believe at least 10 times as many of their cells and their genes um, as there are humans genes. But so, but that's been the nature of, you know, what, as far as we can tell, multicellular life for over a billion years has also involved kind of living adjacent to bacterial 
single cell organisms uh, in a symbiotic way. It's, uh, it's just another reminder that here we are thinking that we're walking around being so independent and we don't need nobody to survive and do well and we're so, you know, separated from others where in reality we're so absolutely well connected. In fact, not, not only we, you know, are not on our, on our own, but we are a part of something that perhaps is living and breathing through us without even us knowing that. Right. Right. I mean, you think of when the scale of time, you know, we were vertebrates, right? And so the first, our first vertebrate ancestors were fish and they showed up about 500 million years ago. But for the 500 million years before that, there was a lot of evolution and a lot of um, change before vertebrates ever showed up. And they're still trying to figure out, there's been a lot of questions and mystery around it, how that happened and how that evolution happened um, before vertebrates came. And so I think, I think we're on the forefront right now. Of, of, and I think science is and molecular science is on the forefront of, uh, of starting to answer some of those questions. Hmm. I really love where this discussion is taking, um, taking a direction to. So maybe let's talk about some things that we know about gut health already, and then maybe we can name a few questions that we don't know yet. So let's start with the things that we do know. Um, for those who maybe are just beginning to catch up on the trendy topic of gut health, what is gut health? Uh, so, you know, gut health, the simple way to put it right now, everybody understands probiotics, they understand probiotic bacteria. Um, they've heard about it, and they know that, you know, I think people have gotten to the point where they're not grossed out by the idea that there's these good bacteria that live inside of us along the, you know, if you think of the inner lining of our intestines, it's our epithelial lining. Uh, these bacteria live uh, adjacent to that epithelium, but they're still separated by a very thin layer of mucus um, that keeps a little tiny bit of a distance between that, that uh, epithelial lining and the, and, and the bacteria. Um, so they're close, but not too close. Hmm. Um, that's, you know, when you, and I introduced you to you know, my friend, Andrew Gortz, okay. the GSU, and, you know, um, that's what a lot of his research has done has been able to show that healthy relationship of the thickness of the mucus that helps to separate bacteria from the lining of the gut. Um, so that, I mean, that's, you know, gut health is about the state of that relationship. If there is symbiosis, meaning, you know, that we are in harmony with that, um, with those bacteria, and uh, we are maintaining homeostasis where they are helping us and we are helping them. Um, that is this idea of this symbiosis. And that, that's where a good relationship um, works is that they are, you know, they are being nourished and they're thriving and they're doing good things for us as a return in a way for um, having a place to call home. So you're continuing to blow my mind away. And the word I just wrote down is relationship. And it makes so much sense that health or gut health is about the relationship of us with other creatures that live around us, in us, as a part of us, and, and having that relationship being balanced in a way that we both coexist together and we take care of each other. And that, that healthy relationship is then producing the health within us and around us. Yeah. I, I love your, I'm feeling like I'm getting a philosophy <laughs> undergrad now because I'm applying like all of your philosophic ideas to all of this like scientific health factors that we're describing. This is, this is a really cool exercise. I'm loving it too. <laughs> okay, so uh, moving on. So why, why does um, gut health matter? Um, so, you know, it, it matters, you know, because the downside, um, of having to nourish and maintain symbiosis you know, with another group of organisms is that, uh, if the conditions are not good, you know, you create something called dysbiosis and that's dysfunctional, it's the opposite of symbiosis. And, and so, um, you could argue that in America today, in American lifestyle, which now 
you know, has been exported to other countries around the world. Um, that we have, you know, we've sort of institutionalized this idea of a, this dysbiotic relationship with our gut. You know, we have, um, because of the way we eat our, I know, and I would, to be fair, I think there's been a, a continuum from, you know, over the last 300 years when, as we moved away from farms and into urban settings and further away from the soil uh, that we came from, there is a degree of foreignness that comes of, of the fact that we're not as adjacent ourselves to the soil and other organisms that our ancestors were. And so, you know, that creates some, you know, some change as well. Hard to tell what, how much influence that is, but we know that based on the way we eat, the processed foods, lack of fiber in our diet, um, since 95% of us in this country don't eat enough fiber, uh, that that contributes to this sort of mass dysbiosis. And it, when I've talked to some of the, you know, gas, you know, gastroenterologists, these GI specialists that um, deal with a lot of chronic inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And um, I kind of think of it in a different way in that um, I asked them, well, is it possible that rather than we think of somebody having this or not having this, that could, you know, some of these inflammatory bowel diseases potentially be the extreme end of a spectrum of, you know, the country that where there's a lot of us who are living in this degree of dysbiotic, dysbiosis, this dysbiotic state, but the extreme of that would, could potentially be um, inflammatory bowel diseases. And so we want to ask that question to a couple of people that were kind of like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's nothing they can't say anything to refute that, that, that could very well be um, the case. And then maybe irritable bowel syndrome, which is not nearly sort of as pathologic as something like inflammatory bowel disease, that maybe there is some kind of continuum of that spectrum there as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it sounds like there are a few components uh, that uh, take or take part in the symbiosis or the healthy relationship in the gut health. There is us. <laughs> As a, like the human component of us, at least. Um, then there is the hopefully healthy gut bacteria that occupies our gut. And there are many different kinds of the bacteria and they may arrive in different quantities. Um, and then there's also the, the mucus lining that can be a very thickness that kind of separates um, the, the two between us and provides maybe the platform for that symbiotic relationship. Is that kind of about right? Yeah, and I think one thing I've, I forgot to add is that, um, you know, a couple of things. One is that when when the bacteria are nourished and are thriving, they are producing um, the mucus as part of the byproduct. But what they're also producing is is uh, molecules that help uh, the immune system modify um, uh, inflammation, being able to modulate inflammation. These are like short chain fatty acids, and these short chain fatty acids. Then so. 70% of your immune cells actually are, reside in the gut. This is this gut associated lymphoid tissue, GALT. And that's why you'll hear the term, you know, 70% of your immunity comes, you know, is, is, in, your, is, from, is in your gut. And um, we say that on the website as well, we talk about that, you know, and it's based on some, you know, some evidence there that, and could it be a little bit less than 70% or a little bit more? Yeah. But the fact is, is that um, all of this lymph, the, you know, 70% is lymphoid tissue is in the gut, which is adjacent to this microbiome. There's all these gut bacteria. And when both are happy, the bacteria are um, producing a, a, a byproducts that help our immune system modulate inflammation. So, and that all over the body, not just in the gut, you know? And so, and we're still scratching the surface, I think, on, on a lot of it. It's just, it's in terms of really understanding um, the role it plays in various types of, you know, chronic diseases and acute infections. Mm -hmm. That's um, that's really good point to mention exactly maybe what areas and and how what areas of health or disease it can uh, influence the symbiosis or dysbiosis in our gut. So I know you mentioned one of them is immune system, which is especially important in the time that we live in today. Um, but I think uh, there, there's a lot of research coming out that your gut health is basically connected to 
every other function of the body uh, yeah. to your mood your you know clarity of your mind there's um i i've heard or, uh, or read through some articles about the connection between you know gut health and depression or different kinds of um, kind of mental health issues that may um, express themselves in kids and adults and you know skin health heart health um uh, the blood circulation. There's so many other things. What are what are some of the top um, factors of health or disease that stand out to you in relation to gut health beyond just immunity? Right. And, and you know, uh, for a disclaimer, again, I'm not like I wouldn't say I, I am the expert on gut health since I'm a pediatric emergency room doctor, but I've definitely been researching all of this and trying to make connections and the philosophy major side of me trying to you know, put, <laughs> put, put some pieces together. Uh, the uh, you know, I think that there is, we're in a place where we're finally starting to accept that there is, there was a layer of, of, of our understanding that was missing 20 years ago. And then over the last 10, 20 years, we've really advanced to a point where people realize this is real. Like this is, there's something here. And so even with immunology, uh, some people argue that, uh, you know, immunology is life. You couldn't have life without immunity. And uh, the crossover between everything, you know, is there's, a, there's this interconnectedness because, you know, immunity is about modulating and sometimes provoking inflammation. And the, um, whether it is your mood, whether it is your heart health, definitely we know heart health, cardiovascular health has a lot to do with, with inflammation, mm -hmm. um, diabetes, um, obesity, mm -hmm. cancers. Some people are referring to certain, you know, you know, uh, cancers being an inflammation based disease, right. Or dysregulation of our, uh, of, of inflammation. And so that's where, you know, there is truly a biological connection. And I think 10, 20 years ago, if you ask somebody about, the connection between gut health and mood, I think in you know, most of us doctors would have rolled our eyes at it, you know, and kind of be a bit more judgmental saying, ah, you know, um, it's more hocus pocus. And we're in a different place now where there is, you know, again, our tools have improved and molecular science has gotten to a point with our understanding that we can really apply uh, more of a biological basis to to these things, and people are doing it you know, all over the place. Um, and it's interesting because it is people from different disciplines, and so uh, the, this research science has become very multidisciplinary, and that's been really neat. And so, uh, you know, I feel like I'm as I'm an outsider coming into the world of research, um, and it's exciting just to see how much activity there is in various disciplines who are using molecular tools, sometimes tools, you know, and evolutionary insights. Um, and so it just, it kind of repositions the idea of immunology um, is not just the fight of infection. You know, it is our body's you know, core way of handling life and death decisions and even mundane decisions that have to do with how to regenerate a layer of cells, you know, in the normal cycle of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, learning about microbiome uh, and gut health has definitely been a very interesting and, and humbling experience. I think it's um, definitely challenges, it challenged me and I, I, I see challenging scientists and health coaches as well to kind of re-examine their uh, beliefs and maybe previous almost oversimplifications of, of how our bodies work. Um, I think that that probably has been one of the biggest thing for me just like helped me or reminded me again to appreciate how truly magnificent and magical our bodies are. And there are so many kind of examples that are coming out of that. And one of them uh, that I'd like to talk about is about that preconceived notion that calories in calories out that's all the math that you need to do in order to maintain healthy weight and healthy you know bmi but what we're learning yeah. and gut health is just such a good indicator of that 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 is absolutely not true um can you talk about that a little bit more 
yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's both frustrating and exciting. <laughs> and you know, frustrating as somebody who comes from the world of sort of more of um, of uh, academic medicine uh, originally. You know, I'm a private practice doctor. You know, for the last twenty years, but I've um, but you know, we have those roots where learning about evidence based medicine and and everything's about, you know, education, you know, you, information is all you need to get people to make changes. And the frustrating part of it has been in being in the startup world um, with Choose, um, I realized that uh, it's completely different. You know, it is decisions are not made on information. Decisions are made on emotion. That's human nature. And yeah. I think sometimes we can get a bit, uh, it's, it's sometimes it's easy to fall into that trap. I think as, you know, as a scientist to want to believe that's all you need to do is you have the answer, you have the information there, therefore now change comes, but that's not the way the world works. And um, in terms of, you know, human behavior on a day, you know, day to day basis, uh, maybe it's, you know, the nature of the environment, you're living in at the time but it just that's right now you see it it's just people um emotion drives a lot of day-to-day -day decisions and reactions to things mm -hmm. yeah and the the notion that uh, the diversity of plants in your diet is the number one predictor of your gut health is just another good reminder that it's about quality and not quantity um, and the, you know, the fact that, you know, our microbiome has its own chronological clock. It has its own, you know, what is it called? Cyclicity or it, so it has its own uh, biological cycle that it operates on. And we need to be in sync with that. Um, I, the, like the Dr. Michael Greger talks a lot about chronobiology and the fact that, you know, the, uh, the, the calories that are eaten in the morning are not treated by your body the same way as calories that are treated at night. And just the fact that like, there's literally the, your microbiome literally has its own like cycle where it wakes up in the morning and it's ready to process things. And then at night, maybe it goes to sleep and it's optimal to give it rest and stuff. So there's so many lessons to me too, that are coming out, especially now applying your perspective or philosophy to the whole thing, how the same as like diversity, diversity is great everywhere in your gut, in your workplace, among your friends. <laughs> I think if you ask my family, I think that the, uh, I think stuff I'm talking about could probably be used for one of those um, sleep apps, you know, that help <laughs> people get to sleep, I think is probably where it might be better suited at. Or if you talk to one of my colleagues or friends, they're like, oh my God, what is going to stop? Um, the, uh, so for a podcast, I think it's probably better suited, but I didn't, I didn't, I realized I didn't even answer your question about it, like in terms of quality. In quantity, you're absolutely right. You know, I think it's we've gone towards, um, um, you know, our, it, even for doctors uh, who, you know, we should know more about the, you know, the metabolic basis of food, and we don't. We, we we base our decisions based on culture and emotion, and we are probably just as co-opted as a, as a group um, as anyone in terms of our attitudes towards foods are instincts and what we're inclined to gravitate towards things like that um, is based on what the food companies and uh, what the messages they put out. That's, I think, I think just like everyone else, I think we're driven in that way. So we forget that it very is much about um, the quality and not having as much uh, processed foods making up your diet, but having whole plants and things that, you know, plants have been around for a billion years longer than we have on this planet. And inside of their structures are the elements to help survive the, uh, survive the environment, the ultraviolet light, fungal infections, various infections. Uh, and we've just forgotten that. We've gone so much towards convenience that we've lost sight of the fact that uh, we aren't sustaining ourselves with things that actually helped us come about and evolve in the first place. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's maybe hunker down a little bit uh, more on how do you how do you improve your gut health? So let's say somebody just wants to be healthier, or maybe even they're having some troubles with their gut health, as as they may notice. What are some of the things that you suggest one does to improve their gut health? Yeah, this is where it's exciting. I think um, again to avoid the trap of wanting to oversimplify things that we often do. This is why we have things like Metamucil. It's like oh, get more fiber. Well, you know, it turns out we know that there are all of these different colonies and strains of, of probiotic bacteria in us. And uh, it turns out that they all have different preferences for the type of fiber that they will digest or break down. But so fiber is good for you because it is fuel for the, you know, the non fiber is non-digestible carbohydrate from plants. In fact, our probiotic bacteria, they digest it, we don't. But they all may have different preferences different types of plants and so there was some evidence of this um over the last several years in, in research studies that that, that already showed that already showed like andrew gewertz's research showing that you know they used inulin as a uh, prebiotic uh, processed plant fiber from chicory root that in the animal models they studied that they would see um improvements in all the and all the markers for gut health and one of the main markers for gut health is microbial diversity, which means in the stool, the poop, you know, how do you, when you culture and you look at the profiles or, you know, the various techniques, advanced techniques they have to look at all the profiles of the probiotic bacteria that are, that live within us, that the, when people have a larger diversity of, of these organisms, that that is equates to better, stronger gut health. Mm-hmm. So like they showed even with one single fiber added to certain diets and, and the animal models, they would find improvement. But then you know, there was the hints that, you know what, it's not just about one fiber because it appears that all of these different strains have different preferences, different types of the chemical structure of those, how those fibers are built and how they digest them. So it made sense that it seemed that if you used more natural um, forms of the fibers and more diverse array of them, that it would appease and appeal to a broader, wider array, a, a, a variety and array of these probiotic bacteria. And so in 2018, there was something called the American Gut Project. Um, it was a large consortium of researchers and they um, based out of the you know, headquartered in San Diego. And they did the citizen science, science project. And it was just really, really uh, cool where they got in the beginning for the study that they published based on 10,000 poop samples that were sent for people. It's got <laughs> these kits and they put their poop sample in the, in the kit and they sent it to the headquarters in San Diego where the research was done and they collected the data. And one of the things that they were really surprised about, uh, and this is like such a massive point considering where we are as a society and our health and everything. This is, I can't even emphasize how important a point this is. Like, yeah, they, they were surprised to find out that when they looked at the samples and looked at microbial diversity, when they separated the groups into the groups of people who self-reported having more than 30 types of plants a week as part of their diet, and not necessarily because they were vegan or vegetarian, you know, the idea was just that this is the array of plants that they consumed on a week-to-week basis um, as part of their lifestyle. And when they had that group who ate more than 30 types of plants a week, and they compared it to the group who ate less than 10, the microbial diversity numbers in the group that ate greater than 30 was just unbelievable. It was this clear difference. Not that they were always the same. Mm-hmm. They themselves in that group were different, but the microbial diversity, again, AKA the measure for gut health uh, was remarkable. And to the point they were surprised, you know, by, and again, it, it just, in a way, validates what our grandmothers told us, you know, mm-hmm. eat more fruits and vegetables. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise, but at the same time, it was a great evidence-based find, finding done in humans rather than animals. And it becomes a great deal of, you know, important evidence that seems to have gotten drowned out. That was published in 2018. Um, and for some reason, over the last four years, it seems like it's hard for important scientific facts to make it into the news cycle. I don't know why. I'm not making any political comments. 
But how do you say that? Because I keep thinking, like, the more I learn about gut health and the importance of diversity, um, the importance of keeping the good guys healthy and feeding the good guys the food that they like, uh, I keep thinking about there's so many parallels about keeping your gut health or keeping your microbiome healthy and running a country. You know, you want diversity, you want the strong people, you want the people in the right bus uh, so they can be in the positions that they are powered to do. You want to feed them well so they can do their job well. And so you can all live happily ever after. I mean, there's so much stuff to learn. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is crazy. I think, um, God, like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, like immunity is, you know, could potentially, you could argue, goes back to the beginning of life. And you know, primitive immunity, our primitive instincts. Um, I think, you know, and as humans, what we realize now is that a lot of our primitive immunity is suppressed. It is in order for more advanced immunity to do the work and maintain homeostasis. Um, but uh, it's a lesson for life. It works at the molecular level and at the, at the cellular level and also at the societal levels is that Constantly, as we evolve as a species, we go through these phases where our primitive instincts for self-destruction, for um, thinking selfishly and not thinking uh, in terms of the larger community, um, those instincts are always there through life. That, like I think, and through evolution, and. Uh, you know, we're talking about before a little bit, I think I look at it as if you look at this, someone's was telling my son about this yesterday, like if you were on the moon and looking at earth and you were, you realize there was an atmosphere around this bubble, this, that's the biosphere of, of our planet, right? We have an atmosphere and it's contained within layers of the rings that go around it. So that's, but that's, we're on the ground side, you know, and this is our biosphere. And we just got here recently to this biosphere. This biosphere has been evolving for over 4 billion years and it's gone through a lot of change. And, um, you know, I think as you study, you know, I've been studying recently just for some of the research work I've been doing, studying more on, uh, you know, kind of crossover between uh, immunological theory and evolution. And I feel like there are two things that come up repeatedly in terms of how life evolved. And it's always based on two things that life evolves um, based on one is tolerance, you know, because we have to sometime at some point forego the instinct um, to act primitively, you know, you know, blow shit up kind of thing <laughs> um, versus uh, not tolerating. You're like, oh no, we don't have to have this extreme primitive reaction, right? So tolerance, tolerance is the big thing and cooperation is the next. I think life evolves, you know, from single cell organisms to multicellular organisms to complex organisms. Uh, that happened through cooperation. Cells learn how to cooperate with each other. Tissues learn to cooperate with other tissues as they evolve from very you know, primitive single layer organisms to organisms like ourselves that are three layers, you know, and, um, and it's kind of gone towards something. And we are where we are currently because of this whole cycle. And it's gotten there because of, of tolerance and cooperation. I, I feel like it goes, it's, it, it works on the biological, molecular level, all the way up to the social level, you know, where, where as a, you know, for social evolution as well. It's only eventually through tolerance and cooperation that we either evolve or we don't. What a beautiful message. What a beautiful message. And it makes, it makes so much sense, as you said, and on, on all levels and scales and, and big and small. And as it, as it works in our body in terms of tolerance and cooperation, like even when you think about your immune system, 
right? You want, you want just enough inflammation, but you don't want too much inflammation. You want for the immune system to take care of, of the virus or whatever it needs to take care of it. But at the same time, you don't need it. You don't want it to overreact. So that's kind of that's how I have been thinking about our response to COVID as, as a nation and as a, as a population of humanity coming together, right? Has our response been too much? Has, have we been too quick to react and have, have our kind of reaction was too drastic given, given the consequences? Has it been not enough? Was it too slow? Was it too fast? Was it just enough? And is, is it doing the job? And I think keeping all of those things kind of in mind and in balance is so important, but it's also very complicated to do. And it definitely, it's, it, there's a magic to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, there's a balance. Like over time you look back and say there were these blips, but eventually things move forward and it could be a thousand years from now that we look back and say, you know, that same thing. But I, and I think, you know, as, as you're talking about that, I, I feel like, uh, the things that move in parallel with that idea of tolerance and cooperation is inclusion and diversity, hmm. you know, and I think there's something parallel about that in the end, you know, there is, you know, um, and, and it's interesting that that becomes um, such a movement on a social level where we have, and that's how you break it down right now. You have people who are pro inclusion and diversity and those who are not. And are scared by it. And again, I think it's a bit of a cycle of life and a natural reaction to living things. And um, yeah, it's it's you know it's it's exciting. It, it it is interesting. I definitely I enjoy. I found I find myself having enjoying again. You know, older age. I enjoy. Uh, I do enjoy being able to have some time to think about these things. So I feel a bit more in, a, in the end, I think a little bit more um, grounded in sort of my belief in, a, in having some degree of acceptance mm-hmm. of behaviors that are intolerant, not, not so much acceptance or by any means saying it's okay, but to understand that I think when I was younger, I would probably have a little bit more intolerance myself towards that deal. Like, oh, how can that person be so themselves intolerant and not realize that inclusion, how important inclusion and diversity are. Mm-hmm. But now I think at an old rate, I, I realized that um, you're always going to have that. You're always, it's in, there's not a time that you're not going to have that um, pushback. Um, but just trying to make it on a bit of a wider scale uh, to make it more acceptable and make it more center, of a centerpiece for how our society kind of keeps evolving into something much better civilization Hmm. tell me about some of the things that um we don't know and you think maybe are still gaps in either our understanding or research or some of the things that we still yet have to 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 learn or discover yeah i think it's it's a great question it's like one exciting it's it's very interesting thing is and i think we're close to it um and again there might be more progress than i realize on this but uh you know, we know that uh, better gut health is about more diversity in your plants, right? And it's not that 30 is an absolute number. They, they just picked a random number just to kind of distinguish between groups in their research study. Um, but the, uh, we know that that diversity is good. However, now, as, as there's a lot of people who suffer from inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel uh, syndrome. Um, and what we don't understand is why fiber often can provoke more symptoms in people who have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, what is it about the balance? Yes, you know, you kind of, you kind of say, oh, it must be because there's some kind of imbalance and then when they get the fibers, but we don't really have the answer as to like, why? Like, you know, why is it that somebody with irritable bowel syndrome then is less t- tolerant to starting to eat more plant fibers? Um, and, I, I, you know, it's, probably something within the next couple of years that we'll, we'll, we'll understand a lot more. But I think that's one thing, one layer, one piece of understanding that, we're, we're, uh, that we still have to get to. Another question that I'm um, interested in, I think there is, 
more participation or impact uh, from microbiome on all different kinds of diseases and disorders than, than we realize, or maybe I may be aware of. And, mm-hmm. and another mm-hmm. one that's kind of interests me a lot is things related to behaviors, um, mental health, uh, maybe such things as addiction to different substances or behaviors. Um, I think there is a lot of conversations within the, the 12-step communities about certain kinds of addictions being a family disease. And what I've been playing around is the idea, well, is it family disease because we learn it from each other? Is it a family disease because it's in the genes or, is it, or does it become a family disease because we share a lot of the same microbiome because we coexist together? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, what I would say is like, I think from what I've read recently, there is um, sort of the idea of the gene idea of, of where the family microbiomes will keep being, uh, you know, kind of persist it it seems as though environment plays a much bigger role on dictating sort of the outcome of a microbiome profile so the food you eat where you live you know what is the nature of that lifestyle how close are you to soil Mm -hmm. um and um you know how sterile is your environment versus not so sterile you know so the the situation I think it has a big part to play. And so uh, that's not to say though that there isn't some genetic lineage to it, but you know, it's, you're absolutely right in that we are at a place now we're starting to make these connections that 10, 20 years ago, you know, we weren't, but we're still, there's a lot, this is an area again, that I think there's a lot to learn, mm-hmm. you know, what I can speak to, um, you know, that don't, you know, I, I don't know a lot about, you know, in terms of addiction science. I do know a lot of, more about um, respiratory viruses, and there is a microbiome, just like in the gastrointestinal tract. And think about, you know, our barriers from the outside world are the skin, our skin, you know, that protects us on the outside, and um, a respiratory tract and gastrointestinal tract on the inside. Those are our barriers from the outside world. And as humans, you know, our, our species only has one layer of that epithelium. And, uh, you know, it's so, it's a, it's a really, really important interface. And so in the, in the respiratory tract, just like the GI tract, there's also a microbiome. And as we talk right now, I'm involved more with, and, and I'm very interested in, in pathophysiology in terms of when respiratory viruses attach to an epithelial cell um what happens but there is this layer of microbiome you know the of, of bacteria that, that the virus passes through they have to pass through you know and it is another it's one layer that is that we still don't know we have you know when the gastrointestinal tract there's a lot more understanding of that relationship in the respiratory tract i think we're just scratching the surface mm. but as we make models and kind of try to hypothesize this is how the disease happens um, you have to do it with a caveat of saying we don't know enough yet about the microbiome to say, you know, if we were to exclude it and say like, this is how we think this works, but you know, we could get to a point where we're going to look back, um, and say, you know, why is it that Italy got so hit, hit so hard, you know, with COVID? Why is it that Albany, Georgia had this, you know, outbreak that was kind of crazy, but nowhere else, you know, uh, in, in other parts of Georgia, rural Georgia had an outbreak like that. And in the end, we might come, go back to understand that it is the nature of that regional microbiome. I mean, it is, it's completely plausible that you could have, and I'm not saying there's any evidence to say that that's definitely the case, but it, it could be. I mean, it's just, that's where you have to, I think, as scientists, people have to approach these things, the idea of saying, is it possible? Or can, is there, do I have evidence to exclude that as a possibility? No, I do not. We don't know yet. And so there are, there could, it, it is within reason that you could have certain regional microbiome profiles that are region, more regionally based, based on the living conditions and circumstances that could also contribute, you know, uh, what's exciting to me on the science side of it is that there is so much that has evolved in such a short period of time in terms of scientific 
uh, advancement of knowledge and understanding. And over the last ne next year or two, that is going to continue to evolve and explode in terms of we're going to look back a year or two from now and say, can you believe back then we thought you know, X, Y, or Z? And then <laughs> it's humbling. It's both, it's humbling, that, but it's exciting because you want to be part of, a, you know, of, of, of putting some of those pieces together to say, to, to get to that next point of understanding, you know, mm -hmm. and to me, that's, what's exciting about being sort of, um, sort of being a, a bedside clinician, uh, practicing medicine and um, doing the research uh, having a startup company that is addressing the epithelium in a different way, you know, um, through, you know, more whole plants, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's exciting. I feel like I'm, I'm drowning in epithelium <laughs> more than anything. It's a better way to approach, approach it, but I, uh, <laughs> I probably went off topic there a lot, but no, that's great. That's hopefully really answered great. some question. No, you definitely did. You definitely did. I mean, I want, I still want to be respectful of your time. I know it's getting late and you have, you have kids too. So let's maybe start wrapping it up. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about choose. Um, and for the listeners, uh, you can also refer to our previous episode. I think we got a little bit more into the details and the, the kind of how the idea of choose came around, how you founded it and a lot more in the details of how the company works and stuff. But I think we could still talk a little bit right now, maybe about um, relating choose and the message and, and the, the mission behind choose uh, be, and making it relevant to the issues of gut health and how you're addressing that through your innovative startup company. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, Choose, um, I've been involved with Choose for about seven, eight, seven or eight years. Um, my friend came up with it and it's 35 fruits, vegetables, herbs, nuts, and seeds. And it was, I always describe to people that five years ago, it was five years ahead of its time. Because uh, people, from, you know, five years ago, it was hard to really decide, like, what the heck is it? And gut health was not something people talked about. Fast forward five years and you have a product that is, we call it a juicy super salad. So it's like there is pressed juice component, um, but two more closer to two thirds of it is really more of a super salad component, more chopped whole plant. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, it, what ends up happening is you have this wide array of whole plant fibers. You have fiber six gram. We have six grams of fiber and 150 calories in it's eight ounce serving. It's we call it awkwardly delicious and ridiculously healthy. Um, the, we've done, we at one time we were at, in 10 whole foods and, uh, two years ago, I pulled us out of whole foods and just tried to make it simpler kind of model. And so now we're hundred percent an e-commerce company. We've done two research studies, one at Emory, um, school of public health, as well as at Georgia state, the Georgia state one was a microbiome study. that was exciting uh, with Andrew Kowertz, um, and, you know, he was featured in the New York Times. And that's how I found him. As a matter um, of fact, I like how you say that as a matter of fact, I mean, I just want to put a pin into this really quickly, because it, I think it is a really, really big deal. I mean, there are tons of supplements who claim things and who don't even have any kind of backing behind their name or their claims. And the yeah. fact that you have a product on the shelf that, that you know, that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's somewhere in the middle between a drink and a, and a snack, maybe a smoothie and a juice and a salad. And it's exciting, but yet it has the research and science to back that up. So I, I would like to reemphasize the fact that you've done two research studies on that. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's, yeah, to, you know, I would say if you want to compare it to kombuchas, people always think of restoring yourself with kombucha, right? Mm -hmm. I think in, in restorative agents, kombucha-like stuff, people look to for that. It's become very popular. Uh, yeah, I think we probably have more validation in terms of here's an animal model, you know, through Andrew Kowart's lab that they ran. Um, and it was the same design and methodology for the uh, research that was um, featured in the New York Times. So basically the same, they, instead of using inulin, they used choose. Um, and, you know, the, and the results were fantastic, in, in especially with micro, my, uh, microbial diversity. And it made sense. You know, okay, yeah, you have more wide array of plant fibers, and you end up having um, higher microbial diversity. And you know, for the group that did get juice um, in this animal model, and so yeah, there is this validation there, and 
again, I think it, it's common sense. It's, to me, it's not going to be our marketing drive, you know, to, to, to bring that up to me. It was more of a personal thing that I wanted to be able to have some degree of validation if we could and the opportunity came. So it became exciting to, uh, to do that. And it makes me feel better to be able then as a physician who, who, who values evidence and, um, you know, over emotion, you know, the idea that it should be something that I'll feel better appealing to people's emotion if I have something that I know is based in evidence. And I think that's the best way I can put it. And so that's where it's exciting. And I can put my own reputation and my um, myself behind that approach rather than, you know, being on an infomercial and trying to, to convince people something can do some uh, some kind of magic. We, we always say we, we're, free and we choose, we're just trying to simplify people's gut health journey because if they can go to the grocery store and they can do the exact same thing as juice, they don't need juice to achieve good gut health. Juice is not, it doesn't have anything different that the farmer's market or the grocery store has. It's just the idea of simplifying, getting more whole plant fibers into your day to day, your week to week. So we have, uh, you know, juice.com. We, we ship all over the United States. Um, we sell it in 12 bottles per order uh, right now eventually we'll probably go up to 24 bottles per order. And, um, you know, people are just oftentimes doing it on a subscription or they're getting it every two to three weeks typically and um, have it in their fridge. And that way, like for me, if I, uh, you know, eat a bit too much or eat the wrong way on one day, the next day I might skip breakfast and lunch and have, you know, a couple of bottles of juice instead. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite ways to to enjoy juice? Are you just do you just drink it in the morning? Do you pour it over granola? Yeah, no, that's a great yeah granola thing. I, every morning I wake up and I crave. I take a bowl of granola. Um, I put on blackberries and blueberries, mm-hmm. and just fresh blackberries and blueberries, and then I pour red juice over it. What kind of granola? Um, I'll just do some kind of like honey oat type of granola. Uh huh. You know, my wife buys the organic uh, Cascadian farms. And so we use that one, um, but I'll do different. I'll sometimes mix it up a bit, but then I just do with the fresh berries plus the juice. That way, you know, between the granola, the berries and the juice, I'm getting at least 10 or 11 grams of fiber um, in a morning, you know, uh, breakfast. And it's just, I think for, for men, especially, I think sometimes that one bottle of juice is not as filling for women and one bottle of juice is, 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 is can can kind of help help you feel kind of satisfied f- full for three to four hours mm-hmm. you know but uh for guys i found that we you know kind of doing it over granola type of thing is 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 is, uh, is more sustaining yeah and what a cool way to start the morning what, what did you say it's 35 different kinds of fruits and vegetables in one bottle and herbs yep. so and nuts yeah and so there's nine types of vegetables eight different types of fruits seven types of herbs and spices six seeds and three nuts amazing that's like a jump start to your microbiome army <laughs> in the morning <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah again i think this is where we were five years ahead of our time five years ago yeah well the time is now <laughs> exactly yeah so we're excited i think we just want i think like you had suggested in the past too, learning from people, seeing how people use it, trying to see how we can make it better, how we can make the experience better. Um, and in the end, if there's validation, if people and other companies start to see that, well, these guys have momentum behind them, people like it. If you can get more companies and more people making products based on diverse array of plant, you know, different types of plants, a rainbow of whole plants, um, that's a win, you know, mm-hmm. even if somebody buys our product once or twice and then never buys it again, because they figured they like how they feel when they eat more whole plants in the morning or during the day. And they decided that they're going to go just, they're going to do it on a week to week basis at, in the produce section. As a physician, I couldn't ask for anything better. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they come back to our product later on, that's great. But if, if, if it helped get them towards a journey towards better gut health, then that is good enough for me. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that mission. And I also, I just keep thinking about the fact it's 35, it's a variety of 35 different things in one bottle. And I think the challenge today is, um, we kind of talked a little bit about it before we started recording is, you know, whether somebody's 
quote unquote healthy or not healthy by like their eating standards, whether somebody is vegan or vegetarian or keto or whatever it is that they're doing at the end of the day, it, you can do all of those things and still eat like one, two or three kinds of foods and just survive on all the, on those three foods every day, day in and day out. So I think being mindful about specifically and intentionally introducing diversity um, is, is a good thing to do. And it's also, can, it also can be really fun. So I would yeah. challenge listeners to just take note and maybe reflect on what you've eaten today and see how many different plants you were able to get into your diet. And is it 10? Is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 35? Um, you know, how, or in a week, how many different kinds of plants can you get in a week in your diet? And I think it can make it fun. For me, what it does, I think it shifts the focus from scarcity to abundance, right? Instead of thinking, oh, I cannot have those chips. Well, whatever. It's like one kind of thing. It's a potato. Get over it. You know, you can have 35 other ingredients in just one bottle. Like focus on the things that you can have. Focus on abundance and on getting that diversity in. I think it just makes it so much more fun. But also yeah. to me, I mean, I, we've spoken before and you know it. I'm, I'm a big fan of the product. Um, I love the product. I think it's fun. I think it's refreshing. Uh, it's great as a snack if you're on the road or if you're just, you know, running back and forth and you don't have the time or the energy or access to good nutrition, especially if you're training for something or just trying to like stay healthy. It's such a convenient way to get your diversity in, in, in a, in an enjoyable, fun and, you know, uh, funky kind of hipster way too. Like it's, I, I really, really enjoy that. Except for the hipster part. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I'll take it out. <laughs> I'm joking. I, uh, I appreciate it. I, funny enough. I, I appreciate it. I, I, th I think, you know, you're right. And, and I appreciate your energy with it and your support, your enthusiasm. And I'd like, I'd like your whole MO of just, you know, you're not, you're never judgmental with people with the lifestyle they choose, but just trying to look at the positive of everything. I think that it's, it's wonderful. So, you know, I'm lucky that our paths have crossed for, you know, through this and got to be friends. And, you know, I think that enthusiasm is infectious. So <laughs> well, I'm very much appreciative so much. of it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you. Okay, well, it's getting late. So now maybe let's wrap it up. Um, I, I personally got all of my questions answered. I'm really grateful for the lesson of applying philosophy to gut health. I think we're going to call the episode the philosophy of gut health. I think it's perfect. <laughs> um, but let me ask you, are there any things, any like words of wisdom, parting words that you wanted to share? Any things that we maybe we didn't touch on that you wanted to make sure we gotten into our conversation? Um. I think just those four words of uh, tolerance, cooperation, uh, inclusion, and diversity. I think it's something worth, you know, it's something that everyone can reflect on. And, you know, that when you do reflect on it, you can think of that it, it goes from the molecular and biological and serial level all the way up to our social level. Mm. And it applies, all, you know, and I think it's worth reflecting on those things for our lives. So... And I appreciate you. I very appreciate the time. That is a beautiful, beautiful note to, to end on. I, I really love those words and, uh, and those values and both implementing them as, as we talked about on, on all the many different levels, starting with a microbial all, all the way to social and, and national and global. Well, thanks, Tina. I appreciate, I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs>